I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Romans chapters 1 through 4. Now, we'll need to abbreviate our comments on these four chapters if we read everything that's in the written notes of BibleTrack.org. Then the podcast would last well over an hour. So, uh, we'll just kind of abbreviate our comments. And if you'd like to find out more about the passage, about the verses within the passage that we'll be looking at today, then consult the written notes of BibleTrack.org. Let's give you a word about the book of Romans. Romans was written to believers in Rome around 58 A.D. Paul was likely residing in Corinth at the time of the writing. With regard to the people of Rome, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says, As to Rome itself, we may picture it at the date of the epistle as containing, with its suburbs, a closely massed population of perhaps 800,000 people a motley host of many races with a strong oriental element, among which the Jews were present as a marked influence, despised and sometimes dreaded, but always attracting curiosity. Now, before we start reading out of the book of Romans, I should point out some words that are used continually in this this epistle to the Romans. First of all, let's talk about the word grace. It's from the Greek word charis. Actually, the word charis is used 130 times in the New Testament and literally means extended kindness. In other words, salvation is possible because of the extended kindness of God toward man. This kindness is undeserved and thus constitutes a free gift from God. Therefore, grace is often defined as free gift. In Romans and Galatians, Paul devotes a significant portion of his writing to contrasting grace with works. The Greek word for works is erga, and it reflects one's deeds. Therefore, with regard to one's salvation, grace and works are complete opposites. Now let's talk about the word faith. The Greek word for faith is pistis. It's used 244 times in the New Testament and literally describes complete trust and reliance. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it defines it like this. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Therefore, since faith has substance and serves as evidence, it reflects a reality that simply has not been consummated yet, but a reality nonetheless. Now, let's talk about the word believe. In the New Testament, believe is the verb form that constitutes faith. They use the same Greek root, the P-I-S-T, and transliterated to English. The Greek word for believe is pistuo, and literally means to exercise faith in. Of course, the noun form, faith is pistis, and as you noticed, each begins with P-I-S-T. The Greek word does not reflect the degree of uncertainty that our English word does. When somebody says, well, I believe this or I believe that, to believe pistuo in the Greek means literally to exercise complete confidence in something or someone. This Greek verb is used 124 times in the New Testament. 
Now let's address the, the word sin. The noun form of sin is a is hamartia. It's found 174 times in the New Testament. The verb form of the word hamartano is found another 43 times. The Greek word means to act contrary to the will and law of God. In the New Testament, it's used to describe not only one's particular actions, but also it's used in the context of the state in which we were born into this world as a result of the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden. In that context, it is often referred to as one's sin nature, as in born with the propensity to sin by our actions. It's this sin nature that makes everyone unworthy to go to heaven on one's own merit. Now let's address the word righteous and righteousness. The epitome of righteousness, of course, is God. The adjective righteous is translated from the Greek word dikaios. It's used 43 times in the New Testament, and it reflects the state of being in a perfect relationship with God. The noun form dikaiosune speaks of that state, and it's used another 92 times. And then finally, the word justify. This is the verb form that results in righteousness. The Greek verb here is dikaio, and uh, it's the same root as the adjective for righteousness and the noun righteousness. Therefore, justified, the verb, literally means to make righteous. So, dikaios is the noun form for righteous. Dikaiosune is the noun form for uh, righteousness. And dikaio is the verb form which makes you righteous, which establishes righteousness. All right, with those words out of the way, let's begin with Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Uh, these verses have the introduction to the epistle. Verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated into the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name." among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, we have these first seven verses here. They're packed full of fundamental Christian principles. We see a servant of Jesus Christ in verse 1, uh, Jesus Christ as the Messiah, Christos in verse 2, for more detail, look at the written notes of BibleTrack.org. In verse 3, we have uh, the fact that Jesus is physically descended from David. See the notes on the Davidic covenant and also the notes on Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, paralleled with Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38, for more detail there. Uh, in verse 4, we see that Jesus is uniquely distinguished as the Son of God by the Spirit of holiness. In verse 5, regarding Paul's apostleship, uh, Paul declares himself to be an apostle, as he does in this passage and other passages as well. Uh, you can study more about that. If uh, you look at the reference in Galatians chapter 2, verse 8, that's uh, there, a link to it is there in the written notes of today's reading. In verse 6, as believers were also called, kletos is the Greek word there, uh, called of Jesus Christ just as Paul was, 
This verse indicates that the Gentile inclusion of these Roman recipients is mentioned here in verse 5 also. In verse 7, Paul refers to believers as those who are called to be saints. Uh, might want to take a look at John 6:44 to get more detail on the calling of uh, sainthood. All right, verse uh, 8 of chapter 1. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, or that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also." We see in this passage that Paul commends the Roman believers in verse 8 for their stand in the faith. In verse 9, the King James Version adds the phrase, in my prayers. The Greek text implies that by simply stating the fact that Paul makes remembrance without ceasing. Beginning in verse 10, Paul expresses a desire to visit them in Rome, but pressing commitments have prevented it. The King James Version translates the Greek verb, Kaluo as let in verse 13. That's a word which means to hinder, and actually in sports uh, like tennis uh, and back in 1611, uh, let meant to hinder, and sometimes you have in tennis a let, which is a hinder. Uh, the Roman audience is comprised largely of Gentile believers, we see in verse 13. In verse 14, Paul expresses the gospel commitment to the Greeks and to the barbarians. Because the cultural norm during this period was dominated by Hellenists, meaning Greeks, by the influence of these Hellenists since Alexander the Great, um, Paul divides the Gentiles into two categories, Greek-speaking and non-Greek-speaking, or those being the barbarians. Paul's reference to wise and unwise is to be understood as educated as opposed to uneducated. Romans was not actually written with a Jewish audience in view, as we'll see when we get over to Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. That's where Paul deals with the issue of the Jews' relationship with God. What about righteousness? Look at verses 16 and 17 here. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greeks. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. Paul suffered much in the process of preaching the gospel of Christ. Considered by the Roman government to be a sect of Judaism, Christians suffered considerable persecution at the hands of Jewish leaders and later by the Roman government itself. Paul indicates that this message of Christ went first to the Jews and then to the Greeks, a message for which he was not ashamed. We have a word about righteousness as it's used here in verse 17. Uh, look at the written notes of, uh, of this passage right here. 
for Romans 1, 16 and 17, you'll see some interesting parallels. As a matter of fact, where it says the just shall live by faith, that's also used in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. But it didn't just originate there. We first find the just shall live by faith in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 in the Old Testament. That verse says, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. This term, the just, means being righteous in God's eyes. All believers are righteous in God's eyes. That's the effect of Christ's death on the cross. So how are you made righteous before God? When you trust Jesus Christ for salvation, meaning you ask Christ to save you in prayer, declaring that you are trusting no one else nor anything else except Christ to get you to heaven, you are at that point made righteous as in just before God. In other words, all believers, all believers are just before God. Paul makes it clear in verse 16 that this is the unadulterated, clear message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing else will do. Oh, one more thing. Paul's emphasis in verse 17 of from faith to faith indicates that it is only by faith that we are justified from, here it is, start, meaning from faith, to finish, that meaning to faith. Now, some folks might ask, aren't there alternative methods of righteousness before God? Well, let's see what it says. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventor of evil things, disobedient to parents without understanding, covenant breakers without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Well, what about it? 
alternative methods of righteousness before God. Well, they don't exist. Let's get our bearings here from verse 18. The verb in that verse, revealed, actually comes from the Greek word apokalupto. It's present passive indicative in the Greek text, indicating that God's wrath is being revealed against ungodly men at the very same time of Paul's writing. Now, verses 19 to 32 describe the process over time and generations whereby mankind has become so depraved. Now, read the written notes on uh, today's reading for these verses right here. Uh, A lot of insight there that I've shared with you concerning uh, what the Bible says about this ungodly activity on the part of mankind. Also, I'd encourage you to take a look at Leviticus chapter 18. Uh, In the notes there, there's a link to that in the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today. God's judgment is righteous. And let's also talk about the law in Romans chapter 2. Now, I've written an article, by the way, on the judgments of God, six judgments found in the New Testament. And uh, you can look at the written notes of BibleTrack.org, and there it is on the right-hand side of the screen next to the heading of Romans chapter 2. Or you can go to the uh, table of contents or the the main page of BibleTrack.org and look under the topic section for the article entitled Six Judgments Found in the New Testament. In this chapter, Paul talks about the law and its relationship to Jews as well as Gentiles. Now, don't let this chapter throw you. It can't be understood properly without chapter 3. And that's where Paul pulls these verses into proper context. Both chapters, chapters 2 and 3, are required to complete the thought here. So, just to give us proper perspective before we read chapter 2... I want you to keep the following verses from Romans chapter 3 in mind. The first one I'd like for you to keep in mind is Romans chapter 3 verse 10, which says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now verse 20 of chapter 3 says, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And verse 28 says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So keep these verses from chapter 3 in mind as we're reading through chapter 2. And whenever you read the verses in chapter 2 and begin to think that maybe, maybe, maybe Paul is somehow suggesting that eternal life can be obtained by keeping the law, then I want you to refer to his clarifications to chapter 2 found in chapter 3. And you will realize, no, it can't. Well, then you ask, what is meant by some of these law-oriented comments in chapter 2? Well, again, let me say, do this for me. Each time you read a statement in chapter 2, that would seem to indicate that keeping the law can somehow make someone worthy of eternal life. Read these four verses from chapter 3, which, by the way, are part of the same discussion by Paul. And that should put it into proper perspective for you. Let me add one more clarification to this discussion. Paul in chapter 2 is tactfully saying the same thing to these Romans that James did in James chapter 2 verse 10 when he said, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. 
for those who pride themselves in keeping the law for righteousness, James is clear about this. Breaking the law just once, it destroys the whole proposition just one time of breaking the law. There's another interesting parallel between Romans chapter 2 and James chapter 2, and that's the role of one's religious persuasion in salvation. The Jews, about whom Paul is speaking here, are no more saved because of their Jewish religious persuasion than the devils of James 2.19, where James says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. You see, salvation is strictly, I mean strictly, about a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. Now let's read the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 2. Therefore thou art inexcusable, man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness, and forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds." To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile, for there is no respect of persons with God. So with the all have sinned clarifications that we mentioned earlier as in the introduction to chapter 2, keeping those in mind, let's look at chapter 2 here in context. We see throughout the chapter that being a Jew and having the law of Moses makes one accountable to God. But it doesn't provide a layer of protection against God's wrath when a Jew declines salvation through Jesus Christ. This chapter dismisses the possibility that a Jewish heritage somehow serves as sufficient basis for entry into eternal life. It doesn't. Righteousness is all about faith, a faith relationship with Jesus Christ without regard to one's religious heritage. That being the case... We can see the equal footing with regard to salvation for both Jews and Gentiles, a point specifically driven home here in verses 9 and 10 that dismisses the notion that somehow a less depraved lifestyle gives you some sort of an advantage with regard to eternal life. Now, Paul kicks off this chapter by stating that those who pride themselves in judging people by the law of Moses are guilty of breaking the law themselves. Verses 2 and 5 show that a righteous judgment is ahead for all of us based upon absolute truth. I'm going to let you uh, look at the written notes of BibleTrack.org for all the comments that uh, are written here regarding this passage. So I'm just going to sum up these 11 verses. To sum them up, let me just say this. Good deeds can't earn eternal life, not by Jews, not by Gentiles. The judgment of God will be conducted according to truth. We see that in verse 2. 
So with that being said, we're now prepared to see the principle upon which one may have eternal life in the next verses. Verses 12 through 16. And we see here that judgment is according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing them witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now, I am going to comment on these verses because these verses 12 through 15 can be easily misunderstood if taken out of the proper context. Paul's taking away the differentiation between those who have been living by the law of Moses, in other words, Jews, and those who haven't been living by the law of Moses, in other words, Gentiles. In no way whatsoever is Paul suggesting that the ignorant can be saved by an alternate means. What he is saying in these verses is that Gentiles, without the law, have an equal condemnation from their consciences, as the Jews do from the law itself. The reason? Well, it's because their consciences are initially seated with the basic principles of nature, those of good and evil. That foundation was laid in this discussion back up in chapter 1, verse 20. There it said, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Consciences, you see, become seared later in life as a result of continued evil doing. That principle is clearly seen in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Now here's the key to verses 12 to 15. The key is in verse 16 when it says, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. God's judgment is going to be conducted, not according to man's ability to keep up good works, but by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. That message of grace through faith becomes the dominant theme in the chapters that follow, chapter 2. But first, the futility of an attempt at salvation by any other means other than faith. That's the emphasis in this chapter. Now, don't be thrown here by verse 13. Keeping the law of Moses throughout one's lifetime has never been done by anyone except Jesus. That fact is made abundantly clear in Romans chapter 3. Remember we looked at those verses earlier? You'll miss the point here completely if you are of the notion that there are those who can keep the law. Because let me just tell you, no, they can't. Now, some might not quite see the significance of Paul's usage of the word gospel, the Greek word euangelion, or good news. Let me just say that Paul uses the word gospel as a technical term, never lightly or in a generic fashion. We see clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4, through 4, that Paul regarded the gospel message to mean that one must believe in the efficacy of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and receive this message by faith as the only means whereby one may go to heaven. Again, let me say, if you read verses 12 through 16 and somehow think that you're seeing an alternate means 
of getting to heaven? Read that passage again and my notes in the written notes of BibleTrack.org here, and you'll see that quite the opposite is being emphasized there. And read the introduction, by the way, to chapter 2 again. And there you'll see that it's impossible for one to keep the law of Moses to attain righteousness. Now let's look at verses 17 through 29. Let me just say that circumcision is a technical term here. It's used in this passage to refer to Jewish people, and uncircumcision is a reference to Gentile people. The rite of circumcision was an exclusively Jewish practice ordained by God for his people Israel. It was a token of God's national covenant with them. See my notes on the Abrahamic covenant. There is a link here on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today. Or you can find that in the topic section on the main page of BibleTrack.org. Verse 17. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which hast the form of knowledge and of the truth and the law. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonors thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. For circumcision verily profiteth, if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not the uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law? For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Wow. Here in verses 17 to 24, Paul's driving home the James 2 concept, the James 2.10 concept. And he's saying this, if any of you Jews have ever broken the law of Moses, then you're a lawbreaker and you're not worthy of salvation. Paul really drives his point home when he says in verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. By the way, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 52, verse 5. That verse says, Now therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them make them to howl, saith the Lord, and my name continually every day is blasphemed. He reinforces that in verse 25. As a matter of fact, the law is mentioned nine times in these verses with additional mentions of it with the phrase, the letter. Then in verses 26 to 28, Paul engages in a little bit of Jew-infuriating reasoning. Here it is. What about the non-Jewish person who keeps the law? Does that act make him righteous? Observant Jews during that period of time would take exception to that notion. 
Paul is showing how ridiculous the righteousness through law-keeping mentality really is. Then we see the transition towards his point in verse 29, the last verse of this chapter. In this verse, Paul explains that it's a heart thing. You're righteous based upon the Holy Spirit's impact on your heart. While man praises outward conduct, God looks at the heart. Verse 29. Interestingly enough, it was always a heart thing. Always. People then and now mistakenly thought salvation was acquired somehow through doing something rather than establishing a faith relationship with God. Now keep in mind, and I have it written in the written notes, but I skipped over it when we were doing the podcast today. Keep in mind Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. It's regarding Abraham, and it says, And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now note this. Favor with God has always, I mean always, been about faith. It has never, 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 never been about works or one's religious persuasion. And keep in mind, chapter 3 solves the dilemma Paul intentionally creates in chapter 2. And that brings us to chapter 3. And we'll answer this question. Do Jews have a leg up or don't they? Verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. Paul's continuing his discourse here from chapter 2. So what do the Jews have over the Gentiles? Well, that's Paul's question here, and the answer is simply this in verse 2. They were the first to get the gospel, the oracles of God, as it's referred to there. And that's it, nothing more. An interesting proposition is then seen in verse 3 with regard to the gospel-rejecting Jew. Does his rejection of the gospel message create an alternate means whereby a Jew may get to heaven? No, it does not. Interestingly, in verse 4, Paul draws from Psalm 51, 4, which says, Against thee, thee only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Now here, David refers to God's righteous judgment in the light of his own sin. That was that Bathsheba sin. Well, accompanied by the sin against Uriah as well. So, if as David suggests here by his own words, God's righteousness thrives in the face of our own unrighteous acts, then aren't we doing God a favor when we sin? 
or as he puts it in verse 5, but if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, well, he puts it another way down in verse 8. He says this, and not rather, and then in parentheses, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, and here's what they say that he says, let us do evil that good may come. In other words, some were accusing Paul of preaching a message that God's righteousness thrives when we sin. Now, verse 5 completes the thought of chapter 2. Since we're unable to keep the whole law without a single violation, the law accentuates the righteousness of God and it condemns man. This verse even addresses the that's not fair issue. In other words, if one is unable to keep the whole law because of human frailty, does that mean that God went overboard in establishing such strict guidelines? Not at all. The strong rejection of the notion that God somehow didn't see this whole thing coming, well, that's disputed with the Greek phrase, meganoita. Interestingly enough, that's translated God forbid in the King James Version. The Greek word for God doesn't actually appear in the text there. But in 1611, the uh, uh, English expressed their strongest rejection of an idea with this phrase, God forbid. In other words, righteousness has never been dependent upon perfect compliance, but on a heart surrendered to God. Undoubtedly, that's why Paul quotes from the chapter in Psalm 51, verse 4, where David is repenting for his sin against God in the Bathsheba episode of 2 Samuel chapter 11. Paul addresses a little bit of slander toward him in verses 8 and 9. People who don't understand the relationship between law and grace still make the same accusations today. They assert that since keeping the law of Moses doesn't add to one's righteous standing before God, then why bother to do right? In other words, they would maintain that the more you sin, the more God forgives. Paul didn't teach that. Though it does appear that his doctrine of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ had been skewed by his enemies to imply exactly that. But that's not what he ever said. Oh, well, you just can't make people tell the truth about you, can you? In verse 9, Paul attempts to put the law into perspective for those Jewish and Gentile readers who may be confused regarding its purpose. And here it is. The law condemns the Jew. It does not justify. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 20, we see that no one is righteous before God on their own. Verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher, with their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known." There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul talks about the depravity of man in verses 10 through 18 here. If the language seems particularly flowery for Paul, it's because... He's quoting from portions of the Psalms and other Old Testament passages to make his point. 
and I've written in the written notes of BibleTrack.org, uh, Psalm 5, 10, 36, 58, 140, and Proverbs 1, 1 verse 16, uh, from which Paul's quoting. Undoubtedly, Paul drew heavily also from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 2 through 8. Those verses are written down in the written notes of BibleTrack.org for the date so that you can see uh, what it um, what they say. Then he makes what I consider a monumental statement about the law's relationship to righteousness in verses 19 and 20. The law exposes guilt. Let me say it again. The law exposes guilt. Look closely at verse 20. It says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Living a good moral life just doesn't save you. Living a good moral life doesn't save. Let me just say it again. Living a good moral life doesn't save, just it never does. I think you get the point. Living a good moral life does not save you. Incidentally, to the them who are under the law, that's a direct reference to the Jews. Gentiles were not under the law of Moses, just the Jews. You'll recall that chapter 2, as we looked at earlier, that dealt with the issue of the Jews being under the law of Moses, while the Gentiles were not. Now let's look at verses 21 to 31. So, what does save? Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time His righteousness, that He might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus." Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Now, beginning with verse 21 here, Paul drives a point that takes us all the way through Romans chapter 5, verse 21. And here's that point. God's righteousness is imputed through justification. Notice Paul's transition into this discussion when he says in Romans 3:21, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Paul uses the next two chapters to validate this very point. He then defines it specifically in verse 22, when he says, Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. So, you see, it's by faith upon all them that believe. Notice at the end it says, for there is no difference. In other words, no difference between salvation for Jews or Gentiles. Both get saved the exact same way. Now, let me just ask you this question. Can it be made any clearer? Look at verse 23. All have sinned. Look at verse 24. 
being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Now in the written notes for today's uh, reading, I've injected some other technical discussions there. We're going to skip those. And I'm just going to close out this chapter by saying in verse 31, Paul begins to introduce his explanation of another dominant misconception. And that misconception is this, that somehow Old Testament saints were made righteous by a different standard. So in chapter 4, we'll see that people in the Old Testament, why they were made righteous just like we are. And that was by faith. So we get into the discussion in chapter 4 of Abraham's righteousness, and we see that it was through faith and not works. Verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justified the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned, when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Well, not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but also walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, Faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Well, in these verses, Paul uses two heroes of the faith to make a point. He uses Abraham and David. Beginning with Abraham, he makes it clear that Abraham was not, I say, not justified before God by his works. He says that in verses 1 and 2. In verse 3, Paul quotes Genesis 15:6, And he believed in the Lord, and he counted to him for righteousness. With this, he shows that even before the law was given, righteousness before God was achieved through faith and not by works. And that goes all the way back to Abraham. Now, verses 4 and 5 are really key here. Now, to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Grace, being the Greek word charis, means free gift. Now understand this. Salvation can't be a free gift if you have to do anything in order to deserve it. 
Conversely, if salvation is a free gift obtained by simply trusting Christ by faith, then there's no amount of work you can do that has any relevance whatsoever. I emphasize this because Paul is clear about salvation here. He says, no work to receive it and no work to maintain it. Now, many pastors teach a misguided doctrine that salvation is a free gift, but keeping it must be earned through a constant level of obedience. They teach that if you stop obeying, then you lose your salvation. Now, if that's true, and it's way not, by the way, then scratch verses 4 and 5 out of your Bible because that would invalidate those two verses. And let me read those verses again. Now, to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Then in verses 6 through 8, Paul quotes David from Psalm 32. Now, Paul makes it clear that David didn't believe salvation came through works either. Isn't it interesting that Paul quotes from David again, just as he did in chapter 3? Both Psalms 32 and 51, having been written by David, after he was implicated for murder and adultery by Nathan the prophet. Nonetheless, David is highly committed before God for his heart for the Lord. Just go back and look at the notes on Psalm 51 to see exactly what I'm talking about. Then in verses 9 through 15, Paul points out that righteousness or salvation is not a product for only law-keeping Jews. In other words, those of the circumcision. But it's a product for everyone who receives it by faith. Paul makes a cute point in verse 11. He makes it for the Jews' benefit about Abraham's righteousness when he points out that Abraham's righteousness by faith took place before Abraham was actually circumcised because that wasn't established until Genesis chapter 17. That means that Abraham was righteous in the sight of God before he was circumcised. That'd be a point kind of irritating to the Jewish audience that would be reading Paul's letter here. There's another subtle point made by Paul with regard to Jew and Gentile righteousness in verses 12 through 14 when he declares that Abraham's legacy of faith was not restricted to his physical Jewish offspring, but to all through the ages who received Jesus Christ by faith. Paul is very specific about this doctrinal point, especially over in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, where there he says, listen closely, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, he saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Now, that's some pretty heavy doctrine right there. But it's doctrine that must be understood in order to understand the full weight of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if that's not clear to you, then spend some time studying the notes on Galatians chapter 3. Well, these 15 verses provide us with a powerful and compelling basis for the fact that works have nothing to do with salvation, not getting it, not keeping it. That's why he uses Abraham and David to illustrate his point. Abraham was righteous before God before he ever took the token of Jewishness or circumcision. And the most compelling argument for salvation by grace apart from works is Paul's usage of David as a model. Though he was, David was, an adulterer and a murderer, he was saved by grace and found righteous before God. Now, don't misunderstand here. 
there was a heavy, heavy consequence for David's sin. But that consequence did not include the loss of David's salvation. The term circumcision here means Jews, and uncircumcision, as I mentioned earlier, means everyone else, Gentiles. It's important to restate the theme of these verses. And here's that theme. The law of Moses has nothing to do with righteousness before God. It's always been an issue of faith all the way back to Abraham before the law was ever, ever given. And then we see in verses 16 to 25 that it's not a Jewish thing. I mean, this doctrine of salvation. Verse 16. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not to that only which is of the law, but to that which also is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickened the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Paul's very clear on this issue. As a matter of fact, he's wearing it out, so to speak. And here it is. God promised Abraham he would bless many nations through his seed, not just the physical line of Isaac and Jacob. He makes this point in verses 17 and 18 here. Study the notes on Galatians chapter 3 for more perspective on this issue. The remaining verses of this chapter make the point that Abraham never doubted God's promise even when it appeared that Sarah could bear no children. Look at the notes on Genesis chapter 16 and 17. Abraham was a man of faith, and it was Abraham's faith, not works, that made him righteous before God. Likewise for all of us, it's all about faith for salvation, never about works. Now what is imputed righteousness? In the closing verses of this chapter, Paul talks about our righteousness and that of Abraham as being imputed. The Greek word there is logizomai. That means to reckon. The imputed righteousness is reckoned to us. It's a simple concept, really, that reinforces the fact that salvation is acquired as a free gift from God and it can't be obtained through good works. When one trusts Jesus Christ as Savior, righteousness is transferred to us. In other words, we're righteous because God reckons to us. The Greek word logizomai. God reckons to us that we are righteous. Now let's be clear. None of us are on our way to heaven because of anything good we've done. We're on our way to heaven because we've trusted Jesus Christ as Savior And we've had righteousness transferred or imputed 
to us by God himself. Paul then ties it all together in verses 24 and 25, and here's what he says. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification, in other words, using the examples of imputed righteousness for David and Abraham, Paul here shows us that our righteousness as believers is also imputed from God as we trust the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, Romans 5.1, which we'll be looking at on the 17th, continues the discussion as Paul proclaims there, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll be looking at those verses beginning with chapter 5 on the 17th of August. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton. 